0: We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense With our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. In
1: 1961, as he was walking out the door after his service to the country, President Dwight D. Eisenhower did something incredibly brave. As a statesman, he stood up and he decried the military industrial complex. But complexes are all around us. Hey, It's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about binary systems and how they keep going. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. It's back. The Real Skills Conference is back, an actual conference. You don't have to get on a plane but you do need to interact face-to-face online from wherever you are. Two hours of interaction on your toes with real people talking about the things that matter, the skills that help us make a difference. Akimbo is back running it again. To find out more, visit akimbo.com go for all the details. The people you meet will change your life. It's been 60 years since Eisenhower described to the public a two-part system, which some people say has three or four parts. And we talk about complexes all the time. It's fun to talk about the blank industrial complex, but I'm not sure we're really seeing what's going on. So I want to take a few minutes to outline what Eisenhower meant and how it's showing up in so many other parts of our world. What he was talking about, sometimes called the military-industrial complex, sometimes called the war-industrial complex, or perhaps the military-industrial-congressional complex. But what it all adds up to is this. If capitalists can make money doing something and they have levers to use to be able to do it more, they're incented to do so. That seems pretty obvious. Think about the fact that for a million years, groups of people have used weapons to either assault each other or protect themselves from each other, hence military. But when you add to it the fact that shareholders are going to make money if a company they are part of makes more guns, makes more bullets, makes more bombs, then they want to do that more. Sometimes we call that marketing. It's one of the many ways to use or misuse that term. How to get your customers to buy more stuff, because buying more stuff is how you grow, and in a second, we'll talk about why you need to grow, but in the meantime, let's understand. We have companies that make a profit. Selling things to a customer, and the thing they are selling are weapons. Who's the customer? Well, in most places, the customer is the government, and the United States where I live is a country where you can use money to influence the government capitalists are good at using money to get what they want. And so there's a system in place. And the system is companies make weapons. Those weapons make them money. They use some of that money to get Congress to buy more weapons. And around and around it goes. That's why it's called a complex. It's a system where one thing feeds the other, which feeds the other, and around it goes. And in the case of the military-industrial complex, we needed to add Congress scientists, and the rest of it, because that keeps the engine going even faster. But it's not just the military industrial complex. We are now living with the pain caused by the prison industrial complex, because like the military, prison used to be something that cultures had to do because there were outlying behaviors that they wanted to try to remove from society. But once you turn prison into a profit-making venture, then the person who owns part of the prison wants there to be more prisoners. And the way you can get more prisoners is by paying the government to criminalize more behaviors by influencing government action so those behaviors lead to more prison time. And around and around it goes. So when we're talking about a complex, what we're talking about is a system that has ended up being taken over by the need for a profit-making venture to grow. Why does a profit-making venture need to grow? Isn't enough enough? And this leads to the other half of understanding what's going on here, which is the idea of leverage. That if a company is competing against other companies, it probably needs resources, lobbyists, better tools, technology, innovations, whatever it is, to beat its competitor. How to get those resources? You get those resources by borrowing money. Maybe you get it from an investor, maybe you get it from a bank. And what we know about money, the essence of economics, is there's something called opportunity cost. Opportunity cost means that if I loan person A the money, I can't also loan it to person B. Opportunity cost means if I invest in stock C, I can't also invest in stock D. Choices are made. And so organizations essentially bid against each other for who's going to pay off the best. Well, once you've done that and you've raised the money, now the investors are holding you to it. And so lines you might not have crossed before, you now feel like you have to cross because of the cost of money. And as you succeed, there's pressure to borrow more money, pressure to get more investors, because if you don't, someone else might. And so the ratchet turns. And this cycle led to the extraordinary efficiency of the industrial age, that it is so much cheaper and more efficient to build a car than it used to be. That's because of leverage. That's because of the race to win at opportunity cost. So what we end up with is this industrial complex that begins to spread. Because even if a founder means well, once the company starts to move forward and there are competitors, which is another piece of the capitalist open market system, then competitors start to change the rules and you have a choice of apparently either losing or going closer to a line you said you were never going to go near. Years ago, I wrote about the TV industrial complex. I don't know if I was the first person, but once you hear it, you can't unhear it. The TV industrial complex is a system that says, wow, we have this technology that lets us beam messages in living color into people's homes. How are we going to create that system? Well, we could build the public broadcasting system and figure out how to make the channels and the shows that people will benefit from watching, or we can leave it to the market. Because if we leave it to the market, the market is a need-sensing device. The market understands that time also comes with an opportunity cost. The market will rush to serve people's short-term needs. And so, people put on shows, not because they think the world needs to see them, but because they know the world will watch them. And why do they want the world to watch them? Because they pay for the shows by running ads. And the people who are buying the ads are encouraging the people who make the shows to reach as many people as possible, because that's how they pay for the ads. The people who make the shows, if they sell more ads, get more resources, they can borrow more money and get more resources. So instead of making a $1 million TV show, they can make a $6 million TV show, and they can win an Emmy award. And so the cycle continues. The TV industrial complex began by solving our problem of what do we put on TV? but now it is solving the problem of how do the advertisers get a bigger return on the money they are spending? And what about the education industrial complex? Well, you're already seeing the theme here. How did colleges end up the way colleges ended up? They weren't like this 60 years ago. 60 years ago, they were much, much less expensive. The college's Don't make a profit in the sense of a for-profit organization, but the people who run colleges and universities definitely get benefits. Some of those benefits can be measured in dollars. Many of them can be measured in prestige and power. So what does it mean when you build a gym? What does it mean when you build something that looks more like a country club than a university? Well, it attracts a certain kind of parent. That parent might have a certain kid with a certain attitude. That parent certainly has a different way of spending money and brings prestige to the system because of our hardwired 450-year-old tradition of privilege and class and race and what's it like around here. And so the cycle continues. Malcolm Gladwell did a great podcast years ago about Vassar versus Bowdoin. Bowdoin has a better cafeteria. Bowdoin has a more beautiful campus. Vassar offers more grants to people who don't have the money to come and pay full freight. What's the point? Well, the college industrial complex cycled and cycled based on the leverage of how do you please alumni? What does growth even mean? Where are we headed? And back to the industrial model, factories have long needed a surplus of compliant workers. Because if there are enough compliant workers available, the factory can move the ratchet forward, make good stuff cheaper. How do you get compliant factory workers? Well, it helps if you start when the kids are five years old and train them to sit still, to follow instructions, to do their homework, to do what they're told, to graduate year after year. And if they're defective, hold them back and process them again. Go through the system, not because we're encouraging creativity and insight and connection, but because we are encouraging you to be part of an industrial complex going forward. And then there's the wedding industrial complex, which I've talked about before. So we took a very simple ancient idea that some people want to get married to other people forever. And then a queen comes along and she wears a white dress. And then De Beers comes along and they market the diamond ring. Avery Truffleman has talked about this beautifully on her podcast. And we end up with another complex, the wedding industrial complex, which, when it's working properly, creates a special day at a fair price that people remember forever, but is also optimized to keep feeding the culture in a loop around and around and around. There's an old joke that there are no towns with only one lawyer. Once there's one lawyer, there's going to be two lawyers. And so, yes, yes the legal industrial complex, because we do need agreements, but we also know that if a lawyer sends you an agreement, you need a lawyer too. And so the lawyers lawyer each other. And the same thing's true for trademark and for copyright and for takedown notices and everything else. That what ends up happening when a binary complex gets out of whack is the first word is forgotten and industrial complex is what is remembered because we are ratcheted only in one direction, by leverage, by debt, by people waiting for their return. Is there a way forward? Is there a way out? Well, it's fascinating to look at something like Wikipedia, which in pop culture terms has definitely stalled in the last few years. Stalled because the shiny dark patterns of social media have taken a lot of the buzz away from what used to be one of the three or four biggest websites on the entire internet. Wikipedia has no industrial complex associated with it. They could pay all of their bills in four days if they just turned on Google ads and then turn them off again. But Jimmy and the rest of the people at Wikipedia don't do that. They don't do that because they know that once they did it for four days, they'd do it for eight days because there's another feature they could add. They could start hosting videos. They could start doing this and they could start doing that. And then they'd be running the ads all the time. And once you're running the ads all the time, you know who you're working for. You're working to make that number go up. And so when we look at the horrible behavior of Facebook and Twitter and the rest, it's because they are industrial complexes who have been wrestling with opportunity cost. When Twitter was young and thinking about going public, I controversially said the big mistake they could make would be to run ads. And to promise their investors that they would grow and grow and grow. The alternative would have been to charge people who wanted a premium membership 50 bucks or 100 bucks. Offer them data. Offer them that blue badge that some people want. Offer them all the things that a professional would want on Twitter. And if a million people pay you $100 a year, it's enough. You don't have to go public. You only have 100 employees. It's enough. We have a chance to contribute if we want to without being part of a complex. And software is one fascinating way that we can double-cross the system of the industrialist because the industrialist is all about marginal cost, raw materials, supply chains. Software can change a bunch of those rules because software can be free. And once we start interacting with people in that way, not to harvest their attention and turn it into money, but simply to produce something without a complex? Well, go ask someone who's part of the poetry industrial complex. Oh wait, there isn't one. And as a result, there's a lot less poetry in the world than there used to be. Poets ended up becoming people like Bob Dylan instead because there is a music industrial complex. The music industrial complex has put music into every corner of our life. And for me, I think it's a pretty good deal I think the negative side effects of the music industrial complex are tiny compared to what Dwight D. Eisenhower warned us about 60 years ago. But we need to keep our eyes open and we need to make real thoughtful decisions about what complex are we building next. Years ago, shortly before he passed away, I was visiting my dad in Buffalo, New York. My dad, like me, loved placebos and he'd been going to the health food store on a regular basis. And what I found in his medicine cabinet were 131 pills he was taking every single day because the placebo industrial complex had gotten out of hand because the story that he was buying wasn't helping him anymore. It was helping an industry that wasn't in it to help him. It was part of a complex, a binary complex that had lost its way. And so all around us, we have the chance to put up boundaries for people who are begging us for boundaries, because boundaries actually help complexes, because capitalists can't help themselves if there are no boundaries. But if there are boundaries and people know what edge to go to, then they'll go to the edge and stop. And so back in the days of network TV, which had lots of problems, one of the problems wasn't irresponsible advertising. It didn't get out of hand. There was someone who was looking at the taste of the ads. There was someone looking at what the ads were promoting. And the advertisers were okay with that because they needed boundaries. So what we have a chance to do is to look capitalists in the eye and say, you know what? More leverage might not be the answer. What we have the chance to do is to realize the culture is our culture. It doesn't belong to the industrial complex. There's always a word that comes before industrial complex. And that other half, whether you're a student or a bride or somebody who's worried about the environment or somebody who's worried about violence or safety, we all have a chance to speak up and say, yeah, this industrial complex got us here, but it's going to need some boundaries because its purpose is not to reward the shareholders who got in early. Its purpose is to build the culture. Culture doesn't exist to make capitalists happy. Capitalism exists to make culture work. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a question from a previous episode. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. any previous episode or whatever is on your mind, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. This one's got a lot of layers to it. Here we go.
0: Hey, Sev. Zach Garsad from Hiram, Utah. Utah's best gift secret, by the way. My question is about your episode on how advertising built the world. I'm a marketer. I run marketing for a company that coaches heating and cooling and plumbing businesses to wow their customers. And we, prior to COVID-19, gained the majority of our customers by going to trade shows and events. We'd set up a booth, we'd speak in a breakout session or a keynote, we'd mingle with business owners. And that's how we grew our business. In the last year, we haven't done that. Instead, we've relied primarily on email and good old-fashioned phone calling to build our business however we're looking for ways to grow we're looking for ways to find more of the people who need our help and everybody points me to things like facebook and google now i personally don't find joy in spending time figuring out the facebook algorithm or how to optimize for the google auction I don't like feeling like I'm working for Facebook or Google, if that makes sense. So my question for you is, what's the best way for a marketer who doesn't feel good about contributing to the Google monopoly or sucking people's time and attention and contributing to the dopamine drip of Facebook? Or as you describe it in This Is Marketing... The social media merry-go-round that keeps spinning faster and faster that never goes anywhere. I don't feel good about contributing to those things. I'm wondering how I should be thinking about this, how I should approach this as we try to grow our business. Thanks.
1: Thanks for this. There, There are two things that are going on here, and I want to talk about them separately. The first one is that you are selling a service that most people in your industry don't believe they need or want either because they're busy installing heating and air conditioning equipment, or their business is just right for them. So the thing that goes on at the conferences where you've had so much success is this. The right people are coming. They are enrolled in the journey you want to go on. What kind of person takes off time from work, travels across the country to go to a conference for people who own heating or AC businesses? Well, the answer is someone who wants more, someone who's leaning into it, someone who is thirsty for progress. Because they're all in the right place and you are there, you get the benefit of the doubt. You have a chance to earn their attention and maybe turn that attention into trust. And now that we don't have those things in our lives, we wonder if we wasted them in the past, knowing how precious they were, just how much care could we bring to them, how much more could we invest in time or effort to help the people who are already demonstrating through their actions that they want what you have to help them find the confidence, find the insight to go forward with you? But that is water under the bridge or freon out of the pipe, whatever cliche we're looking for. And so now the question is how to replace it. Well, there are people who will tell you that you should buy that attention from Facebook or Google. And there are two giant problems here. The first problem is this. If you enter an auction for that attention, you and your competitors will be competing against each other for that attention and all of the money will go to Facebook and Google. It is stacked against you. It is very difficult to find your niche when you're in an open auction in an efficient marketplace for attention. And the second problem is the kind of person you seek, I'm going to assert here, generalizing stereotyping, a 55-year-old owner of one of these businesses who's been doing it with their family for 20 or 30 or 40 years probably isn't typing the magic words you need to have them type into Facebook or Google, hoping that they will find you. It is much more straightforward for them to listen to their peers and go to a conference than it is for them to start Googling something and then possibly clicking on an ad which they are disinclined to trust and then possibly reading about what you do and on and on. So you can see the problem here. The problem is the conference organizer in your old model did the hard work of putting that fish in that barrel. And that job, which you now think of as your job, is a whole different industry, a whole different way of doing business. So, if I were in your shoes, I would think about a longer term, drip by drip. Oh, forgive me for the water reference again. Drip by drip approach that might lead to long-term benefits. It might have a couple elements to it. The first one is this. Who is writing the most important diary, bulletin, newsletter, journal for the people you seek to serve? Because the cost of you writing it and distributing it for free digitally to 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 of these contractors is vanishingly low. If you can generously show up with news, with insight, with editorials, with things that turn on lights for people in this industry so generously that they share it with their peers, you can build an asset. And that asset is permission the privilege of delivering anticipated, personal, and relevant messages to the people who want to get them. When I started my blog, I only had 100 readers. 100 readers became 150, and then 200, and then it grew. And sure, 8,000 blog posts later, it's a really big number. But you won't need 8,000 blog posts if you can find your smallest viable audience, if you can nurture them, if you can lead them. And then the second half is, who is connecting these people? Who is hosting the private Facebook group or discourse board or discord discussion for this group? Who is organizing the regular online conferences and podcasts and conversations that are must-listens to for the kind of person who used to go to these conferences? Because it's easy to defend our sunk costs, our previous commitments, the way we used to do things. But Like all revolutions, it destroys the perfect and then it enables the impossible. It is impossible to imagine that you might have the ability to talk to 3,000 HVAC contractors for free every week. But of course, you can if they want to listen. So the urgent race is to cut out Facebook and cut out Google and not get dependent on fly-by attention stealing and instead to nurture it, to grow it bit by bit until you are the center of a community. And I think you might discover over time that being the center of the community might be even more valuable than the thing you sell. Because human beings like being in community with people like us doing things like this. And we need someone to be in the center, someone to put on the show, someone to say, hey kids, over here. Thanks for listening, thanks for leading. We'll see you next week.
2: I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What all MBA Gets Right is it puts you in a context where You're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me, not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
1: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.